The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandwestern.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. Even before we're born, we connect with the world around us through the vibration of sound. It shapes our experiences, triggers memories and elicits emotions. So what better way to connect with your audience than through something as primal and powerful as sound? At SW Sonic Branding, our team of musicians, composers, sound designers, and music strategists create vibrant sonic palettes for brands looking to be heard. SW Sonic Branding. We hear you. I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to the Creative Relay. <laughs> Welcome back to The Creative Relay. In this episode, we pick up where we left off when Gavin McLeod spoke to Scott Knoll from The Monkees. Now in this episode, Scott's back behind the mic, this time with his own guest to continue The Creative Relay. Scott Knoll, welcome back to The Creative Relay. Thank you, Paul. It's fantastic that you've been able to come back and have another chat to us. And I guess where we left you last time was you were speculating as to who you might get to come back and talk to us. And of course, you have a guest. So would you like to reveal who that is that we're going to have a chat to today? I'm going to reveal that we're speaking today to Justine Armour, who has just absolutely blitzed the creative world. From her hometown of Brisbane, she's uh, worked at various agencies around the world, done the best creative work in the world, and is currently the Chief Creative Officer of Grey New York, one of the oldest and most respected creative agencies in the world. So from uh, her start in Brisbane, she's worked at the best places around the world, Saatchi and Saatchi Mojo, Widen and Kennedy Portland, 72 and Sunny New York. Her work is absolutely globally renowned. I mean, this is a hell of a story. You have been described by... um, you know, one of your good friends, Leah Walker, as the Kate Blanchett of advertising. <laughs> I'm just send Leah a case or something. <laughs> um, thank you for having me on. No, it's fantastic. I mean, we just, we want to know it all, Juz. Okay. Welcome. Welcome, Juz. And uh, we're so glad to have you. Thank you. Uh, live from New York, as they say. And I guess, Scott, you really wanted to start with is the very beginning and just Give us a little bit of background into not perhaps where your career started, but just where you grew up and that sort of story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was born in Adelaide. Oh, so it's not that interesting. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Oh, well, Paul, you can't say that. Uh, I was born in Adelaide. Um, And I moved to Brizzy in, like I was 16, I think, when I moved to Brizzy and went to uni there and I wanted to be an actor my whole, like, as a child and uh, and then decided the last minute to pursue something that was, you know, still really creatively minded. I was like a pretty good English student and I really wanted to do something that was that involved writing and creativity. And also, you know, my family, it's a pretty blue collar family. I heard, I actually listened to your uh, interview, Scott. My dad was a builder as well. And, you know, I think I've We've got a really huge family and they were a construction family. I think I've got like 55 first cousins and I was the first one to go, only one I think out of all of us to go to university. I really wanted to do something that I could pursue a creative life. Well, it's interesting you should talk about, you know, the idea of a career or a business 
part of it and combining that with creativity because it's obviously born out into where you've got to now. You've got to have that sort of uh, business and career sense. Yeah, I went, you know, when I went to, I went to uni, I did a Bachelor of Business and majored in advertising. And I think I, you know, most people that did that course are in the account side of things now. There are not too many creatives that went the path to the path that I took. Most people went to award school or, you know, went to portfolio school if you're here, you know, or did like a Bachelor of Arts or something like that. And I, you know, I did a business degree and, um, but I always wanted to be a writer. That's interesting to know. Absolutely, definitely aren't a lot of creatives that come out of business school. Seemingly a lot of comedians and things like that, that come out of like a law background. But I think that might be a complete knee-jerk reaction to seeing what law is in reality. But um, look, you just mentioned award school. So tell us about your relationship with award school and how you, how you started. I applied to award school a couple of times in Brisbane and I didn't get in. It was always a, I don't know, I, I mean, that, for that reason, I think I've always felt like a bit of an outsider um, in the, you know, the creative. I always felt like I had something to prove. And I ran award school for a couple of years when I was at Cleminger in Sydney. You know, I was on the award committee and I was the, the one who ran the school. So that was about five years later, wasn't it? So you were rejected twice. Yes. And within five years, you were running it. Yes. <laughs> so that sums up your kind of personality, I think. <laughs> it's like revenge or something. My relationship to that school was, you know, it was totally fine. And I always felt like I wasn't really good enough to get in and that's okay. Like I think there's lots of different ways that you can get into this business and you can be validated and it just really honestly made me feel like I had to work harder and prove myself. When you got rejected, if I can use that harsh term, from (laughs) awards school and then went on to be involved in it, did you do anything that changed it to make it more welcoming for people like you who were rejected in the past? I honestly don't think I had that thought process at the time. It was kind of just handed to me and and I saw it as an opportunity to get to know it. Unlike anything I did and have always done, I really just tried to make it a success and and there's some lots of people that came out of the school when I was there that are like having great careers now, and I'm ha- I'm really proud of that. But I have always been somebody who's just like moved on. I wasn't harboring anything when I was running the school. I don't think that's a healthy way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I definitely wouldn't have got in to award school had I not had some serious help with the application. Yeah, and it was also it was in Brisbane as well. It wasn't like a Sydney where you had hundreds of applicants. It was just um, <laughs> just on, on. You mentioned Brisbane because mm-hmm. I'm I'm sort of a Brisbane boy myself. And um, are you? Oh yeah, and I'm very interested in those starting days and where you first ventured into advertising. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I think it was 98 when I finished uni and it was not a good time to be trying to get a job as a graduate and McCann Erickson Brisbane they was like a sort of internship type role and I managed to land that which actually turned out to be answering the phone there for about 10 months and then sort of stealing briefs and trying to get, you know, an ad made, which, you know, eventually I kind of migrated off the reception desk into the creative department. And I started writing ads about tracked homes and uh, naming streets and suburbs and things like that. And so I did that for, for a bit. I loved it. I loved the agency. It was like 35 people there. It was just the coolest job I could ever imagine. It is pretty cool, that first job, isn't it? Ah, 
the best. You feel like you're getting paid and absolutely getting away with oh something. Oh, my God. I got paid $18,000 and I had to live at my mum and dad's for, for the first couple of years because I was, like, not making anything. But it was so good. I loved it. I would, like, I would help on every pitch. I would sleep over at the agency because I would, you know, just work all night on stuff. I, I you know, got, probably got some terrible disease from the glue booth, <laughs> the spray glue. On the glue booth from mounting things. Yeah, from mounting everything. Onto foam core. Yep, the foam core days. And then, you know, even the bromide. I was like we were checking proofs on bromides and stuff like that. It was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was like 20, it was 23 years ago or something now. So, yeah, I mean, it was I loved it and I've always had that experience, like that relationship to agency life. I just like, I just think it's the best job. We don't have the glue anymore. That's just giving me I big know. glue flashbacks. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> when you're a junior, you mount all of the work onto the foam core with this glue spray. You get really good at it. It's clearly carcinogenic. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. And you go home and you get stuck in your car seat. You are covered in glue spray. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I can tell you when, when I started and I saw this world and I saw the creative side of it and I saw the business side of it and I had two big aims and the first one was to do the best creative work in the world or what I thought was going to be the best creative work and uh, the second was that I, I knew I wanted to start a business and when I looked out there, and I, I had a smorgasbord of role models, you know, I'm this, you know, white collar, white guy yeah. going into that industry and I've got these, you know, there's creative directors with sports cars and good lives and clever work. And did you have those kinds of role models? What was, as a young female writer, Mm -hmm. what are you looking towards? Yeah, you know, um, the reason I kind of migrated off the reception desk was I used to write these stupid emails to the whole agency about a dentist that had a deal in the area or like some sandwich place down the road that wanted us to go and get lunch there. And I would write these funny emails. And there was a copywriter there called Nancy Hartley, who was it's just the best. And she, she actually came up to me and said, you're a copywriter. She was the one who kind of gave me the inspiration to really push into the creative part of the business. So I'm not, she's really the one who kicked things off for me and I haven't really stayed that much in touch with her, but I've never forgotten that she sort of identified that in me so and gave me permission to pursue that part of it because, you know, coming out of business school, you don't really feel like that's the part of the business that you're supposed to go into. You were really lucky with Nancy because yeah. I know her and I, I just think she's one of the most creatively generous yeah. professionals I've ever met in my life. She's like a lovely creative spirit. Yeah, and that story that you've just mm. told, I think, That sums her up. I can just imagine Mm -hmm. her just spotting a grain of talent there and just going, do you know what, I'm going to encourage her. Mm -hmm. So a big shout-out to Nancy Hartley. She is a legend, I reckon. She's the best. Okay, so you've got that first job that you love so much. Tell us about that decision then to leave that first job that you love so much. Uh, You know, as with many young people in the business, I thought I just knew so much more than I knew and I just thought that, there were so many issues with this place. I had so many opinions about how it should be different. I became like a bit negative, I think. I got stuck in writing about houses. I really wanted to not be doing that and be doing something different and I couldn't get a break. And so I met the creative director at Clemenger, BBDO, a guy called Sandy Peacock, who 
offered me a junior creative job. I think I was working on Suncop. And yeah, and I so I went over to Clemenger and it was awesome. I was there all, all up. I was at Clems for five years because I was there for a couple of years in Brisbane and then, went out, and then I transferred to Sydney. And while I was at McCann, I did a radio writer's workshop where I met David Blackley and he was the one who helped me jump over to Clemenger. Yeah. So David Blackley is the dad of Cam Blackley, yeah. who is Cam's all right. <laughs> he's all right. But David Blackley became this sort of another figure in my career who identified some spark in me and really wanted to help me. I was at this course, the radio writers thing. I wasn't very good, but I think I had like a very unfiltered spirit about me. I think he just thought I was funny and raw. And so when I wanted to go and take this other job, I, I actually reached out to him and said, hey, I really would love to get some help getting an interview over at uh, Clemenger. And he, he helped me ha- make that happen. Yeah, wow. And at that stage, you, you're really still working, as you, you know, doing radio workshops and working on your craft. Yeah. And it's just that wonderful feeling like you, you are on this sort of exponential growth or getting better and better at what you do. And uh, so the next few years at Clemenger were focusing on that and getting the best work out you could. I hadn't at that point, it hadn't really clicked to me about what it meant to do good work. And then when I was at Clems in Brisbane, David Blackley had come with like, you know, they did the road show and he would show the reel of all of the, you know, the work all from the work, around yeah. the network. And he showed the reel that had, it was Guinness Surfer was on the reel for that year. And it was like a spiritual awakening or something. I was like, holy shit, I did not know advertising could do that. Like I hadn't even really been a student of it at that point. I was just like a, just a copywriter at that point, you know? Um, and so that, at that point I was just like, holy shit, I have to, I have to keep, I'm going to go in the direction of whatever lets me make things like that. Yeah. And so the next opportunity I could see was to like move in the network to Clemenger in Sydney. It doesn't feel like you've ever deviated from that realisation. No, I haven't. Everything I've done, every decision I've made has been about opening up a bigger life, opening up a bigger creative opportunity for myself, just taking a bigger step. And was the biggest step then going to Saatchi? Because I know you joined right after Justin and I left the place. I know. That's how we knew each other because, I, yeah, I joined to, to work on Foxtel and you guys were always in there <laughs> well, <laughs> looking we, at our heels. So I think eventually I was pretty proud of my house for holding on to it for a couple of years while you were, <laughs> you were trying to get it. Yeah, we, we were, uh, we'd, we'd left to write TV shows and quickly realised there was no money in Australian television yeah. and we had to, <laughs> had to right. do some actual work. I don't know how hard it was to work on, on Foxtel and you, you managed to do some really great work on Foxtel. Yeah, it was good. We That was like, I would say, I think that's the first work where I really started to do something that I was like, oh, this can go on my reel. There was that funny samurai one. The samurai, yeah, yeah on the bus and the yeah. bad lassie, the, the fucking lassie that fucks off. <laughs> and exchanging the, your own child. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah. yeah, we did that. We did actually, there was a few things there. And then we did this piece, my first job with Steve Rogers, which was, it would have been a really nice spot of a guy who just like rolls down a hill and then rolls through this like big, all these scenes or this big life. And then like, literally like the day before we were shooting, there was an uh, like an axe spot that came out that was like a guy rolls down a hill I with a girl that. and then like mm. rolls. And I, and it was like, fuck, what do we do? What are we going to do? We've just got, we're in production. We're about to shoot this thing. And so we had to do this like Steve, Steve just comes in and, has a solve to make it feel very different, very artful. And um, 
you know, it didn't have the spirit that the original script had, which was, you know, which was very well captured in the axe spot. <laughs> yeah, it's always disappointing when you, your oh, uh, vision oh. is, is knocked off course just slightly enough just to make yeah. it, you know, <laughs> really disappointing. You went to publicist then with Micah, didn't you? And yes. Uh, I had a chat to him and he said he hired you because you were you're such a versatile writer with with no particular style. You could write anything. Yeah. You weren't a girl writer. You were a writer who happened to be a girl. And he absolutely credits your fresh take on the beer category, for example, for that great work on Bogues and the uh, the Hans Superdrive, you know, super in, super out work that, yeah. that probably uh, made you world famous, you and Ruth at that stage. Micah was like working for him was like a revelation because I don't think I'd ever worked around a creatively driven creative leader until I worked for him. And yeah, I, when I first met him, we met um, at Fratelli in Potts Point, which is his favorite place in the whole world. He lived there, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> so I met him and we talked and I came, came away and I called um I called the recruiter and I was like, I that guy did not like me. I really would like to go and work there. I really think that's an interesting thing that he's doing there, but I'm pretty sure that he didn't warm to me. <laughs> and then um, he did like me. It was just like Micah has, has a, you know, he's like he's, very, he's so focused on the work. He only wants to talk about the work and, you know, I – it was uh, that was like just the tone of the meeting, you know. He's a very funny individual. He's like one of my favorite people in the whole world, and he knows it. And you know, we worked together at three places. He changed my whole life, really. Like working for him and working at that agency, and feeling what he created there in the creative department, and just really feeling a sense of belonging and a real sense of drive. He he couldn't rest on a weak idea. He can't rest on a great idea either. I know. <laughs> you know, it's it's always making. Is it can it be a little bit funnier? Can it be this tiny bit better? Yeah. And that and that's the that's the genius of the uh, the detail that he brings to those kind of things. Yeah, and I loved his playfulness at work and around the work and with people. Tell me more about that, actually. The playfulness is, I, I haven't heard it expressed like that. Give us an example of that. Um, just unfiltered and kind of filthy <laughs> sometimes, and, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, we just had like a really, I, and I don't know if it was just Mojo actually that had that just a really special mix of characters that were just fun and just like there was an intelligence to the to the wit and the fun that was kind of and the banter in the creative department. It was a small crew, you know. Um, Ian Williamson was there, and Steve Wakeland, Ruth was there, um, Kirsty Gavin was there, and there was a few other um, like Dean and David Nathan. That's an incredible crew. Mm. I mean, Ruth had done a, a fair bit of work with us previously, and she, she's just got this wonderfully weird mind, yeah, and a crazy sense of humour. And uh, it just made perfect sense that you guys were doing the work that you were doing. But speaking of the culture, I, I truly think that when people are having fun and they've, they've got that sort of playful approach to, to the work they're doing, you, you can smell it. Yeah. You can smell it through the work and the audience does too and they enjoy what they're getting. Yeah. And we worked really hard too because we wanted to be there. And Micah had something about him that made people not want to rest on it. And we also played hard. Like we were always at the hero at the end of the day. Like definitely it was like a 24 hour. We just lived and breathed this creative department. And, yeah, you're right. Like it came through in the work. We, we had – there was a period there we were making 
you know, there's a lot of good work that came out of that tiny department. And has that shaped how you felt about creating your own culture as you've stepped into leadership? It's always been something that I wish that I could replicate. And I don't know if I have the same level of creative confidence that he has. You know, I would say that I've had a bit more of a hand-wringing, anxious vibe about me sometimes. (laughs) And I hear you feel. You know, the best work I've ever done since then has been work when I've thought about what he would do. As long as you're applying that, what would Micah do to advertising and not other areas of your life, you'll be fine. (laughs) Yes. So making that super dry spot over in LA with uh, Tom Kuntz, did that give you a sense of the kind of budgets and the scale and the the kinds of things you could achieve over there? And did that influence your decision-making when it came to your next move? Yeah, you know what? I'd already had a couple of conversations with Wyden before we made that spot. Melanie Myers was the global recruiter at Wyden and she had come out to Sydney. Sadeep actually put her in touch with me and I had lunch with her. She talked to me about, you know, about Wyden, about Portland, and I didn't really have any interest in moving to Portland. I felt like I was, it was a small town and I was going to be a big city person if I was going to go anywhere, you know. Remember my my kind of view? You're I'm a like, big city girl. Yes. And so I, you know, at that point I was like, I don't want to go with that. Let's talk about um, Amsterdam or London or New York or. And so Ruth and I had some conversations with White in Amsterdam, and we were almost ready to take a job there. And it was before we made the Han Superdry spot. And then um, I think what happened? They lost an account. I think it was they lost an account, and so that kind of, that job went away. And then made the super dry spot and I was going through some like personal stuff at the time. I was going to, I was about to get divorced from Simon Armour and I just decided to reach out to Wyden and say, look, I'm open to Portland if that's it. I just need to get out of Sydney. (laughs) I was like, I need to get out of town. And as it turned out, uh, they wanted Ruth and I to come over and meet them. And as it then turned out, you know, I rekindled my relationship with Simon. He came with me and then we... He still lives there and he's remarried and has children children and everything. So it all worked out for everyone in the end. But we went to Portland, Ruthie and me. And if you're going to go anywhere from there, Wyden and Kennedy has got to be the place, right? Yeah. You, you've arrived there after a, a short stint at the Monkeys again with Micah. Yeah. Where we tried to hold on to you, but you refused and you had to go. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, you get to this amazing place and just tell me about how that felt to be in that environment. I think an important step here to tell you about is that when Micah left uh, Mojo, we started talking about me taking over a bigger role there, creative director role there. Um, and was Pim and I were going to join up and replace his role. And I didn't feel like I could have a followership. I knew that I didn't have that yet. And I knew that I wasn't going to have that unless I made some more really great work and I learned a, l- a few more things about the business and I learned a few more things about, you know, what a really truly great creative department looks like and feels like. And and so that was a really big part of the decision not to take on creative leadership just yet. And so, you know, I went to Widen, I took a pay cut to go there. And, you know, I just really wanted to go and just a hardworking senior creative try and get myself on some great work. That was really what it was about. I, I find that fascinating because up until this point in your conversation, I'm just seeing you as so incredibly driven and a real 
path set out in your mind of where you're going to go. And then suddenly someone's handing you this job on a platter in a place where you're comfortable, where you're established, Mm -hmm. and you're going, no, hang on, I'm not ready for that. Was that more driven, do you think, by your personal circumstances at the time and you just wanted to get out of town? Or was it a genuine thing about this job I'm not ready for? Yeah, it was that. You know, you can't follow in Micah's footsteps. He was so charismatic as a leader in that place. I just didn't think I was going to be good at it. There's like a bit of an idea that I'm an ambitious person. And, you know, I was a copywriter for 14 years before I became a creative director. You know, I wonder if, if there was a man <laughs> that was a copywriter for 14 years and then became a creative director. I don't know that anyone would call them ambitious. I think that's waiting for your time. Yeah, that's just normal in that yeah. circumstance. And I, th- I think we should touch on the, the gender gap stuff. Mm. I mean, recently having done some work for the UN and the gender gap is real and we won't reach equality for 99 and a half years at the rate we're changing. Mm. Um, so we do have to force that change. Uh, I am interested, actually, if the Biden's recruiter, if she wasn't already trying to force that change and find talented women in the industry to, to bring to that place. Do you think that was the case? They were definitely already talking about diversity in their agency, for sure, and but really more um, racial diversity because they were very, very white and very, very male. And Dan Wyden had already been, you know, really acknowledging that, especially at, like a big client, the most important client like Nike, is really drafting off of black culture and not really employing enough black people. And the agency did not have enough black people. And I remember a conversation when after we'd had our interviews in Portland, they told us that they were going to extend an offer to us. And then we came back to Australia and you know, it took a minute and I remember reaching out to one of the creative directors and saying, is there something up? Like, did they, are we changing our minds? And they said, we're in an agency conversation right now about diversity and we've got a lot of white people here. And I said, I didn't really meet very many women. You know, how many women do you have there? And, you know, they had, a, I think they were, at that time, the creative department, including all the leaders, were like 180 people and they were like, nine women in the creative department. Wow. And so we had like an offer the next day or something. <laughs> so <laughs> Good move. It was like Ruth and I were like girl 10 and girl 11 or something like that. I didn't mean to make that, you know, as a point of leverage. It was a genuine question. But interesting to note that the tide had turned in that conversation. It was the industry, all at least Widens, had, you know, turned in the direction of gender and race diversity. I think so. It wasn't long after that that I went to this. There's a conference over here called a 3% conference. I felt I was dragged to it because as a woman in the creative department, you had to really prove yourself that you could hang with the boys and write like a boy and, you know, write about anything and be chill with the humor of the male creative department. And I really did have that deeply ingrained in me. I like I didn't really want to be dragged to this lady conference. I didn't identify as a female creative. I identified as like a creative. Mm. You know, I didn't want to be there for that. And then just as I became really senior, it became really important to be a female creative. And I haven't worked on a beer or a muscle car since. (laughs) (laughs) Now I've been working on equality and women's stuff since then. And that's fine. And I know that it has great value and it gives me a platform to speak to other female creatives and like really grow that part of the business. And also, um, you know, part of the creative industry. And it also gives me sort of a deeper empathy for 
other underrepresented groups coming into the industry and trying to make space for them. So, you know, it's all good. Yeah. I've had my journey with it and I've learned to be comfortable with it and to embrace it, but I didn't feel that good about it at the beginning. I didn't want to be chosen because I was a female creative. I just wanted to do good work on its merits. But then you realize the people who are making that decision are often biased in the first place. And often unconscious bias, just people leaning towards people like them. Yeah. Instead of welcoming different stories into their place. Yeah. But you mentioned you, you do have this platform. You're in this incredibly powerful position within the industry. How are we forcing the change? We've, we obviously have to. And tell us how you're using that position. Well, for starters, I was working on lots of women's stuff. So I would pursue and hire female creatives. But uh, when I went to 72 and Sunny and I was running the creative department there, it became a real point of focus for me to diversify that department. And, you know, I wouldn't hire people if I couldn't find a diverse candidate. I just leave the role open. Mm. You have to hold the line as a diverse leader when it comes to hiring people and making sure that there's a, a comfortable environment for them when they get there and that they feel incredibly supported. And that's a big focus of my work now is like, what is the culture? What is the environment? What, what is the environment that those people can flourish under? Mm-hmm. And having started a business with three white blokes and which quickly grew to about 20 white blokes and Ruth. (laughs) And, you know, it it is that thing where you do unconsciously hire people like you, but then then you think, hold on, it's much more interesting to have people with different viewpoints around. It's up to people who are running these places to make that change happen and actually force it through. And when you do, you end up with a, a much more interesting environment, not, not to mention much more interesting and diverse work for your clients. It's important because not all people who are buying things are white men. <laughs> <laughs> How does that contrast then when you look back to your early days in those formative agencies where that culture was so tight and it just sounded like you were all of a type? Mm-hmm. So now when you're moving into a role where you're just trying to expand the diversity in that? How do you still maintain that sense of cohesion? It's a good question, especially when you are doing it from a laptop in your house for a year. I think consistency and a very intentional orientation toward just being really approachable. No, I think I've got about somewhere between two and 250 creatives, I think, in the creative department at Grey. Is that all? (laughs) Yeah. So we gather on screens on a regular basis. We talk about the work. We talk about people. We, you know, we try to create a community out of it. And always the first and most important conversations are around diversity in the work, diversity, making sure that the people that are talking in the meetings are a mix of people, you know, different levels, different backgrounds, and really getting a sense of like that it's important and it's present. But yeah, it's basic human stuff. So tell us about the new gig because starting at Grey and making that move right on the eve of a pandemic must have just blown your mind. How did you cope? When I started talking to my now boss, John Petrullis, about this job, I was pretty clear that I wasn't ready for it. He had reached out to me a few times about meeting him and I had no interest in meeting him because I had heard so many good things about him. And I was like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to meet this person and then it's going to confuse me. He reached out a few times and I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> I don't want to go. I don't want to even meet him because <laughs> I know what will happen. Because I always have always been about the people that I was working for. Anyway, I don't know what. I felt like it was got to the point where I'd said no so many times and it was almost getting rude. 
So I agreed to go and meet him and just hear him out. And I was not going to take the job, but I was just going to like let him know that I was definitely not ready for anything of that scale. But I liked him immediately. And I was like, well, going to go and work with that guy. <laughs> it was like, I knew it was just, <laughs> it was like this, ugh, everything I knew would happen, happened. But the job is huge. It's so big. And he was very ready to like, he's going to support me in it. And it was gonna, he was going to be a great mentor and it was going to be great. We're going to do it together. He's going to really help me. And then I started. And then two and a half weeks later, we are at home doing a test day in case this thing became declared a global pandemic. And so here we still are on the extended test day. <laughs> How long has this test day been, Jazz? It's been a year. It was, the, it was like, yeah, yeah, I guess a year last week, I think. So yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, this is Sunday night for you. What do you do on a weekend are you in New York? Are you still staying at home? Yeah, home. I think they've just started opening restaurants and bars that are all like, you know, you've got to wear masks and everything's partitioned off and it's all outside. But I'm trying to be a good COVID citizen. You've got a strong civic duty. Yeah. But it's been so important to you to uh, gather the right people around you or go to the places where the right people are. Do you feel like you've been able to to gather those people around you in the, in this kind of time? I have always been like that. And when I went to 72, I was like, I need to hire people. I need to get different people, you know. And what you realise is actually there is greatness in the creative department and because, we, you know, we didn't, there wasn't an, an opportunity really to hire a bunch of people last year, but I was very lucky that there's good people there. And I got to know people and it was I'm actually really fortunate to have a year like I did because it forced me to not be so judgmental and reactionary, you know, which is what I would normally do. It forced me to like really get to know and enjoy yeah. the people that were there and understand what their skills are and understand the nature of the agency and what constitutes good work on, on different types of clients. And it's given me an opportunity to sort of really understand this 104-year-old agency before I start really doing too much to transform it into something that I think it should be. You know, it's been a real gift of learning because now I see what the path ahead for it is and what, what its creative opportunities are and like how to really take it to the next level. Yeah, speaking of creative opportunities, this is a huge place. Yeah. Its creative reputation has been through ups and downs over the years and you're there to make it, you know, a stronger business but also a much more creative business. Yeah. And I can see, you know, some of the work coming out of there already. I mean, it's um, you've got this beautiful equality work for P&G, which is probably a change from the P&G you worked on at Saatchi <laughs> yes. at, in Sydney. Um, yeah, we've all been there. Just don't deviate from the storyboards. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you do, don't have an idea, you guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, you got that sort of beautiful, meaningful work that is doing the societal change thing in the absence of you know, government-style leadership. Yeah. Brands are stepping in and P&G are doing that and you're doing that uh, in this beautiful way. And then you've got this uh, Halo Top yeah. <laughs> campaign that absolutely had me in stitches, you know, ice cream for adults. And yeah. it's just the most awful insights into how how sad our lives I are. I know. The Halo Top stuff was at 72. And yeah, that was really fun. The client was just like, the guy owned the ice cream company. So I didn't know that. I should, we should. Yeah. Cut that out, you guys. <laughs> okay. Whoever's saying it's going to make me sound like an idiot. Wait, before, actually, we should go back and just say, do a montage of your, so you're at Wyden and Kennedy. You do the best work in the world. You've got Mum song on, you know, that, and that was a Super Bowl ad. It's globally awarded, wins everything, is incredibly funny. Uh, you do, you know, dodge this amazing uh, launch of this, 
Dodge Dart, the great Chris Riggett film and really mature stuff and globally recognised and, and things that are being referenced to this day as the, the you know high standard of creativity. You go to 72 and Sunny, you arrive and there's a pitch the first day you arrive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I came, I hadn't even started. But this is an interesting story about equality since you asked me about it. They were pitching on General Mills and the client wanted the agency that they selected to have, you know, to have, I can't remember what the, there was a, some quotas around, they wanted women leading the work. They wanted 50% of women on the team. They wanted an agency that had women leaders in the creative department. And so they were really trying to get me there. And that was a great position to be in. So they brought me to the pitch, even though I hadn't quite started yet. And it was the night before the final pitch meeting, I think it was. And I had not seen this before. Like, Widen is very methodical. You know, it's like you're definitely finishing the deck a couple of days before the client meeting. It's all like... Really? That happens? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's not happening now, but it was at the time, it was like, it wasn't a mess, I would say. We were in a hotel room. Everyone's on a laptop. They're all in Google Slides, which, by the way, we never used at Widen. Everything was printed out. You still had the glue spray? <laughs> yeah, it was. Everyone's writing these decks. I just couldn't get my head around how they were doing it. Just this room full of people riffing on riffing on it. And I just like, I was so much more linear in my thinking up to that point. I just had like I'm such a methodical way of thinking about it. And it was really hard to adapt to this frantic, fast way of working. But I'm really grateful that I had that time of that agency because it's really set me up for, you know, to be honest, for this job and for now, because you learn to think fast. They talk about having a bias for action, which is just like, keep it moving forward. And yeah, it was like a totally, that the culture of that agency and the way they worked is just so foreign to me, but I loved it. I grew to absolutely love it and want to replicate it. I'm really interested in, I don't know if you're thinking, what, what do you want to leave the world in terms of creative cultures or the kind of work? Mm. I mean, you've got the PNG work, you've got the comedic work, and it seems like over your career you've done work that has been culturally relevant and helped shape popular culture. And I'm just wondering, what is your philosophy on, on what you want to leave? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a philosophy on the type of work I want to have left behind. I've always wanted to keep doing something bigger and that was the selling point that got me to get to Grey. This place has got massive iconic brands and, you know, multiple Super Bowl commercials every year, 70-year relationship with P&G. I'm on a screen with Mark Pritchard multiple times a week. We're writing scripts together. It's a different scale of work and it's you get really hooked on the impact you can have when you work here which is probably one of the reasons why I haven't been tempted to come home to Australia yet is because you make something here and millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of people are talking about it. The opportunity for impact is so big. And, you know, now, you know, you just brought up this equality work, the opportunity for advertising to drive change is so huge because, you know, we're working on a thing at the moment, which is about really opening up the sort of production supply chain for black people, for black um black creators through the entire supply chain directors you know dops every single person you know down to the catering on set and everything and it came out of a piece of data that something like four percent of the top 250 highest grossing films were made by black people black directors which is not enough which means you're only getting a very limited view of black life 
in America. That's just not enough to really represent the stories. And also it creates bias. When you don't see enough breadth of stories, you have a limited view of black life and you have a bias. So, you know, we had this piece of data. We presented this idea about black creators in filmmaking. We just made a piece that Mark is now going to tour the various conferences and things that he does and it'll it'll have a, a massive exposure. And from the time of having the idea to like making the thing getting out there, it's like, you know, it's just not that long. So I guess what I'm saying is advertising has a massive opportunity to change things quickly, to drive genuine cultural change. And that's what I'm excited about now. Are you talking about from within the, the industry and in the messaging we put yeah, out there? Yeah, because, you know, you can have an idea about an ad and it's like you go and make it and it's on air in a month. A film takes years. And other pieces of content don't have nearly the scale of the mass audience. Whereas advertising here, if you have the right clients with the right intentions, you can really drive change and change opinions and change hearts and minds very, very quickly. Yeah, well, the PNG work is absolutely beautiful and, and does that and gets people like me to look at things in a completely different way. And on the other side of the coin, you've got things like Cheerios, which is how can I put it? It's just the nicest heart in it. Yeah. And that, you know, that drives change. You know, the, things like that, uh, making kids feel better about themselves is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Every client, especially at a at scale, has the opportunity to have a positive impact right now. And I think consumers want it. You know, not every brand needs to make a political statement to have an impact. Yeah. Mm. Uh, on the other side of the coin, you wouldn't be you without putting out some incredibly funny stuff. And I've seen Pringles recently. Yeah. We, Gray has had Pringles for it. It's like a long, long, long-term client. And in the last few years, they've really made a commitment to making that work great. And everyone should look at that work actually as an inspiration because, you know, they really decided to change the trajectory creatively of that product. And a few people just really committed to it. You know, I don't know if people know the work from years ago, but it wasn't work that you would talk about or would be getting into award shows. No, it was about popping the top of the carton or something yeah. like that, wasn't it? And now you've got Rick and Morty yeah. in, in this mm-hmm. horrible alternate universe where Pringles is... Um, <laughs> being, Trapped in an ad, yeah. Which is the worst possible nightmare. That's a fairly yeah. brave thing for a client to do. <laughs> Yeah, I can't really take too much credit for that work because it was all happening before I got there. (laughs) But it is definitely, you know, I'm really proud of it. And it's an inspiration to me because you look at that work and I look at it and say, there is no client that cannot be transformed by great, just commitment and great work. There is no such thing as a client that can't be made into something award-winning and great if you really just want to do it. The industry gets so much bad press and so much negativity and there's within the industry as well, there's this kind of feeling that are we losing the input that we have into the cultural landscape? So it's really kind of hard to mm. inspire people to choose advertising still as a career. And yet it sounds like you feel like more than ever it's a career that has so much enormous potential for young creative minds. Yes, It's been a topic of conversation for me lately because so much about what I loved about it as a young creative was going on production and just the culture of being in the creative department. And, you know, those things are not happening here now. You know, a lot of production is happening on a screen. And so, um, and I don't know how much longer that's going to be. It might be through most of this year. So it definitely bothers me. And I've been thinking a lot about what could draw people to it. 
you know, what excites me about it right now is the opportunity to genuinely have quick and huge impact. It blows my mind how quickly we can put work out and people are talking about it and lots of people are talking about it and celebrities are talking about it and Oprah is calling Mark Pritchard to like talk about a script that we wrote. The impact is so... The immediacy. Yeah, and the scale. It, it is hard to overstate. You, yeah, the, the, the scale at which you're working as well and you're right, you do have that ability to uh, make positive societal change and to have the kinds of conversations out there and as you say, you can do it very quickly with the right client. If a client wants to do that, one piece of work will make that change. Yeah. From my point of view, it's never been a better time for a creative thinker to be involved in business because businesses need mm-hmm. the people who can make those lateral leaps now more than ever before. Because yeah. you know, artificial intelligence ain't going to catch up too quick on that. Mm-mm. So yeah, I think there's a lot of positivity. And it, it seems like uh, in your environment, I know it's very, it's still very hard in the States in the position you're in, but it seems like there's a renewed optimism, you know, with the uh, change of government. Yeah vaccination, etc. Yes, people seem to be more optimistic now. There's like a real sense of like last year was tough and people worked really hard. You know, we were resourced in a pretty tight way because of the pandemic, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You can see it in the work. You can see a joyfulness in the work that's coming out in the last couple of months. I mean, one thing that this pandemic has uncovered is that we need people with us. As, especially as a young person, you want to come in and you want to get stuff by osmosis. And so I guess it will be a real challenge for you, but when you can get people back together, it'll be a nice thing. I think so. I've been reading a lot and talking a lot about, about post the last pandemic led into the roaring 20s. So You know, I think there's this idea that New York is going to be re-energized, a live place. And there is definitely holding back right now, but you can really feel the desire to re-embrace the culture of New York, which is a big part of why I have stayed through it. And I'm excited about that. You know, I think that in terms of the agency culture, it's good to step back. It's good to go and for people to learn their own ways that they like to work and the ways that they're effective, because then we come back and we design the agency around that you know you don't have to have an agency of 103 now would be 104 years old this year has so much muscle memory in it that it would be hard to change that too much but this year has forced gray an agency of that long has been forced to become such a modern agency and the way that we're working is phenomenally different from how it was you know a year ago how do you feel like you're going to change even if it goes right back to normal how do you think you're going to change things given the last year? You know, I think we'll have a different type of agency, like the environment will be different. I expect that people are still going to work from home two or three days a week. You don't need to go into the agency and like write scripts with your headphones on. You should do individual work wherever you want to do it and do collaborative work in the space, do meetings and presentations and, and collaborative work in the in the shared space, but feel free to do your work, your individual work wherever you want to do it. And so I think that definitely will change what the agency feels like. It's going to feel more on and less just banks of people at desks tapping at computers. I don't think that's what it's going to look like and feel like in the future. Yeah, it feels like a relegation of the duty of having to be there and sit at the office, as you say, with your headphones on. And now creatives can just yeah. um, write scripts anywhere with their headphones on. Mm. They're always going to have their headphones on. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But I will say it's been an incredible trust-building exercise. It's working. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've been stunned with the kind of resilience that people have shown. Mm. 
in the face of something that you could easily throw your hands up and run out of the room, people have just gone, we're going to get on with this and we're going to do the best work mm. we ever have. It, it is actually humbling to see a group of people pull together like that when they're so separated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you felt the same thing. Yeah, it's been a lot easier for people who know, who are seniors, who have been doing it for a while. I, I would say the juniors have had it tough and the mids who have kind of don't have the established skills. It's been isolating for them. I've had to take special care of them and be really intentional about growing them and everything. <laughs> Now, if you're the Kate Blanchett of Australian advertising or advertising in general, are you going to do a Kate Blanchett who's come home and done some um, low-budget Australian theatre? Are you going to come back and uh, give back to the industry by potentially doing some low-budget banner ads or something back here at some stage? <laughs> I don't know how well-liked I am in Australia. I don't know. What have you done? Everyone yeah. I speak to reviews you. I don't know. I just have a feeling that it's not... I've been here for nine years. It'll be ten years this year, and um, I am... Very forthright, you know. I've been called fierce. I've been called um, a powerhouse. I've been called, you know, I'm very opinionated. I'm not a quiet girl in a room. And I don't know, like, I'm not saying that that's the culture of women in our industry, but I've often thought, like, what the f- what do people make of me there now? Just you literally have the world at your feet. You have the world's best catalogue of work. You have the business positions and driven businesses forward. And, and if Gray is going to do well, that is, you know, the person who can write mum song can run a business that big. You can do anything. So whether you go global or go bigger or you start your own thing or you take over when Susan retires from Widens, <laughs> who knows? If you did decide to come back here, I, I don't think you should have any reticence whatsoever. You're an absolute force. Mm. And you would be welcomed with open arms and anyone who didn't can um, just leave. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I do. I love I love agency life. It's, there's never been anything that's really interested me to draw me away from it. Okay, you're not going to go anywhere. Just on the point of support, I did see um, the other day this video of Susan Hoffman reading out a letter that Dan Wyden had written her. I don't, have you seen I that? I think so. Dan Wyden had written her this letter saying, why are you so pissed off? Why are you angry with this? And then he goes on to say, you are so good at blah, 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 blah. You know, this is a time. We need you. And he said, we need you, kiddo. Whatever you want, you talk to me about it. And I thought that was such a great example of what you were just talking about, just a leader saying, look, we fully support you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you do, we're here. Mm And sometimes I think this industry is a little bit callous with people. Yeah. And we can we can flick people when when it when it suits us, or they they look like they're pissed off, or they're not performing, or whatever. And those little moments of support, I think, can really help bind a group of people together, and you know, get the best out of their people and the best out of their lives and their work. The most memorable moments in my career have like been those kind of encouraging words, or when someone told you that you're you know you're good that you weren't expecting or, you know, it's like you can't underestimate what it means to a creative because we're all sensitive souls and the rejection is endless and relentless and terrible. But we do forget, and I forget too, you know, to point people out and say, you did really well here, you know. And and, and as time moves so quickly and, uh, you know, I have 16 meetings a day and there's not a moment to do that, you know, it's a shame. And Dan has that He's a magical person and there's lots of stories about him going out of his way to creatively bless people, (laughs) you know. (laughs) 
Now, I've got to ask you one more thing. So your your buddy, Ruth, uh, I, you know, I asked her to dish the dirt on you and she she said, I'm not going to do that. She wrote me a note and saying, <laughs> Juzzy is just such a boss with the words, you know, B-O-S-S in capital letters. And she's made everything look so effortless. And it's obviously not, but I do want to hear about some major disasters in your career or wrong moves. Disasters. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Name one. Well, since you brought up Ruth, there was, it wasn't a disaster, but it was a near disaster. You've talked about the mum song ad a couple of times. And we were in New Zealand shooting that. And, you know, Ruth and I got that brief and we were pretty new to White and Kennedy when we got that brief and we were working with each other and we, all, we knew each other's limitations, which is part of the reason why we were like, wanted to work with other people when we went over there because we were scared to work with each other and not hit the widened standard, you know, like it's better to work with other people so that you knew like what the standard was. But we were working on this brief together. We were over there and we it took so long to get the song right and we had 10, 11 demos or something like that, different demos and couldn't quite get the song there was one that was almost there it was eddie perfect had written it he's a friend of mine he's a funny guy yeah and he and so anyway we last minute this this demo came in that was the song you know we're in new zealand and about to shoot we're on calls with the musicians and Ruth is changing the song and we're like literally shooting it next day and we're supposed to like the actors had to learn the song so they could you know mouth the words or whatever mind the words and I put the thing on mute and like screamed at her and said we're not fucking changing the song it's exactly this is what it needs to be and she's screaming at me and we were <laughs> this is the, the music house is on mute in New York or whatever and we're like horse screaming a fuck yeah <laughs> like really losing our shit at each other and the poor producer is the sweet woman, um, Lindsay, who's like just just freaking out because the creative team is unhinged and afraid, afraid that we're going to make the, a bad Old Spice ad. And just everything about it was just, oh, we were so scared <clears throat> to fail. And um, anyway, I took it off and she storms out and I took it off mute and I was like, this is, I gave them some direction to keep the song as it was. And... Um, the creative director had to fly out <laughs> from from Portland to just make sure that the shoot was going to be okay. He was there for Craig Allen was there for like one day, and then he, we'd calmed down by that point, and everything was back on track. Um, <clears throat> but it was almost—I mean, it was you know, Ruth and I was—we've we've been through a journey, we've been through some shit together, you know, and um, she's my best friend in the whole world, and. You know, she's the best art director in the whole world, and you know, but that's at that time we were very scared to be the team that was going to make the first, in our minds, the first fail uh, for Old Spice, which you know didn't turn out to be that. No, <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> Ended up being the most popular commercial <laughs> campaign that year, and yeah. And- and I was going to actually ask you what, what campaign you're most proud of. It might be the same. I'm pretty proud of that one. I'm, re- I'm proud of the – there's some work we did it that I, was my first work that I really led as a more confident creative leader for this brand in the States called Secret, which is a women's deodorant brand. And it was all very much stories about young women in sort of stressful situations and it was very personal and it was one of those things that I really believed in and it really resonated with women. I'm really proud of all that stuff. I know that young female creatives want to work for me because they respect that work. So it's become a nice object in my career. 
Well, you, you've got a lot to be proud of, Jess. You certainly do, Jess. You, you really do. What you've accomplished is mind-blowing. Mm. So thank you so much for your time thank today. Thank you both. It's been really great. Oh, thanks so much and, for asking me. And uh, Scott, mate, honestly, for the second time now, thank you so much for availing yourself. It's been really great. Oh, thanks, Paul. And, yeah, Justine, thank you so much for uh, filling in so many gaps of our knowledge about your career trajectory. It's so inspiring, and I'm sure people out there will find it just as inspiring as Thank we Thank you, guys. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests.